again, welcome. Glad you're here. Hope you had a great 4th of July weekend uh, as we're still in it. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We looked a little bit at Ecclesiastes last week. We're going to look at it again today. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, very, very, very familiar passage as we continue to talk about, about balance. I want to talk about balance this morning again. Uh, as we look at the idea that we need to fully embrace all the, the competing tensions that God has placed in his word. And they're only competing tensions in our minds. In God's mind, in his providence, in his sovereignty, in his ways, they don't really compete at all. They're just all part of the big picture. But for many of us at times, we look at these things and we think, well, How does grace not compete with works? How does God's part and my part, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, how how do all of these things come together in God's picture? And really, they're a part of the whole idea of balance in our lives. One definition of balance that we've looked at is that balance is to keep or put something in a steady position so that it does not fall. My contention is this, if we don't really embrace all God's truths about what he's saying, past, present, future, everything that he entails, we are in danger of getting knocked off balance. Just this past week, for instance, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruled on the Hobby Lobby decision about uh, whether they could not join Obamacare and... um, participate in certain forms of birth control, having to pay for them as a corporation. Now, honestly, most of us in uh, our church, in this setting, we would celebrate the decision of faith that a company or people who own a company can have faith. But what if the decision had gone one vote the other way? What if it had gone 5-4 in the other direction? Would you have been knocked off balance? You know, I've been reading all these op-ed pieces that have to do with Uh, women's um, rights, so to speak, the freedom of choice and all of the things. And it's it's crazy to me really how quickly wherever we stand, if we stand on something that we're not supposed to be standing on, then we can get quickly knocked off balance. My life, my future, my direction, this church's directions, who we are in Christ and the kingdom of God does not reside in the Supreme Court. It resides in a God who is the sovereign creator of the universe. And we can't allow different things to quickly knock us off balance. But how do we develop a sense of balance so that when things look or circumstances come our way or we don't have decisions that we think should be, uh, we're, we're hoping for an outcome in a certain way and we get a different outcome, how do we not get knocked off balance? I'm always amazed at the Olympics when the gymnasts do their thing, that whole balance beam routine. My palms get sweaty. I, you know, we got these little 15, 16-year-old girls the whole way to the world resting on their shoulder, and they've got to stand on that four-inch thing 
do flips and turns that I couldn't do. I don't care. I, I couldn't do it on a trampoline, much less do on a beam and stand and land. How did they develop such a sense of incredible balance? Well, I looked up in case I ever wanted to become a beginner balance beamer. Um, here's seven steps toward developing your balance on a balance beam. This is really fascinating to me. Everyone that I read, I was thinking, these are good truths about life. But here we go. Here's ways to develop in case any of you are thinking about going out and becoming at your age. Balance beamers. Number one, practice. It takes many tries before you can consistently walk across the beam without falling. We're not even talking about the uh, jumping, flipping, turning stuff. Just walking across takes practice. Number two, practice with a spotter or someone who will help you walk across the beam. Are not these good truths if you started applying them to life? Isn't it good to have people in your life who can help you as you develop and mature and move forward? Practice with a spotter. Number three, start by practicing on a line on the ground or a low beam, one that's only a few inches off the ground. I know when Annalise was taking gymnastics and I've seen others, I mean, they had the the mini balance beam. It's only this far off the ground. In case you fall, you're not going to hurt yourself. Isn't it good to start small and start to work up? I like this next one. Place one foot in front of the other. Versus just standing. It's good to, if you're going to walk across it, start by putting one foot in front of the other. Here's another one. Extend your arms out to one to the side like the wings on an airplane. It went on and said, you may feel a little silly, but this will help you to balance yourselves. Again, I, I, could, I should just preach these seven points on developing your balance, but sometimes we're really worried about how we look more than sometimes... Looking silly is actually can be a real help. Um, next, stay tight. Stay tight. In other words, they, they said squeezing your muscles so that you don't relax. Now, that's the term they use, not mine, but not so tight that you cannot move. Uh, so, in other words, I think you get the picture. You're supposed to maintain a proper amount of tension the whole time. If you relax too much, you're going to fall off. At the same time, if you get too uptight, you won't be able to move at all. And as you become more comfortable with the beam and your muscles learn the movements, practice on higher higher beams. There's a a method to learning how to walk on a balance beam. There's, There's a method to how God has called us to mature in the faith so that we can develop balance so that we can't quickly get knocked off balance. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, and that's who I believe wrote it. There's some debate, of course, but Solomon is telling us what does it mean to live a life where you don't get out of balance, where things don't go one way or another, and they determine the state of our heart. And in Ecclesiastes 2.1, let me just back up a little bit. I'm going to run into Ecclesiastes 3. But in Ecclesiastes 2.1, in the Good News Translation, Solomon says this, And I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. Is that not the motto of the United States of America? I am, I'm determined. I'm going to find out 
what makes me happy. Now listen, Solomon is preeminently positioned to find out what happiness is. He has things at his disposal you and I will never have. Uh, I mean, he could really invest himself in looking for real happiness. And he didn't have to withhold himself anything. He could indulge beyond any level that any one of us could ever indulge in. So here are the things in Ecclesiastes 2. And again, I'm, I'm just running through them. You can read Ecclesiastes 2. Just look at these things that Solomon pursued in order to find happiness. He pursued pleasure. He said, I'm not going to withhold from myself anything pleasurable. For instance, when it comes to laughter, wine, good times, sexual escapades. I mean, think about this. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 paid mistresses. He had 1,000. Now, whether that's going to give you happiness or grief, that's a whole different discussion. But the, but the point that Solomon is, is saying is, look, I had, I had every kind of sexual, I was totally sexually free. I pursued every pleasure. I denied myself nothing, and it still came up meaningless. It, it was, I was empty. He pursued work. He gave himself to work and an achievement. I'll, I'll, I'll immerse myself in work. He said, I'll build a great empire, create great projects, great cities. Solomon's great public works, his temple, the temple that he built, the palace that he built, they're still being excavated today. The, 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 the temple in Jerusalem is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What Solomon accomplished in work is unprecedented. And yet, when it came to the end of the day, he said, you know what? Work just doesn't satisfy. That, too, is meaningless. He said, how about money? I'm going to pursue money. I'm going to accumulate great wealth. Do you know, in most statistics, if you did dollar-for-dollar averaging kind of thing, Solomon is, by many accounts, still considered the wealthiest man who ever lived. His bedroom was big enough for an orchestra to play in. The daily provision of food required for his household in 1 Kings 4, it says it took 30 cattle and 100 sheep being slaughtered daily just to feed his household. Well, he had 700 wives, 300 mistresses, and Lord knows how many children. He had far more money than any of us could ever imagine, yet still he came back to a point saying it was meaningless. Success. Solomon may have been the best-known person on the planet when he lived. He was famous. People would come to Jerusalem to see him, to meet with him, to be with him. Israel at that point was probably the undisputed leader politically and powerfully and by wealth standards of any nation in its day. It's the pinnacle of the political life of Israel Solomon, as its king, as its leader, had more success than any other king that was before him or after him, and yet he comes to a place success really didn't satisfy. Even wisdom or education. He thought, if I can just know more, if I can just know more. Solomon is considered by a gift of God the wisest man who ever lived. 
And yet, when it comes to happiness and satisfaction, still left him empty. I mean, that is a pretty impressive list. Solomon not only pursued all of these things with passion, but he probably, in each of these categories, may have been the most successful in his age and maybe any age of pursuing pleasure and work and money and success and education, and yet he reaches a point toward the end of his life where in the book of Ecclesiastes he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes is an incredible book. You know, we, I I don't know about you, but when I was being, my, my mom, when I was raised, my mom would have us read a proverb every day. And I still do that. Uh, A lot of days I'll go read a proverb. But it's almost as if Ecclesiastes is the anti-Proverbs book. And it's this balance. And they're right next to each other, written probably by the same guy. We have all this wisdom and then all of this meaningless stuff that says just going after wisdom alone is not enough. So how do we develop balance? How do we not come away with this hopeless feeling. By the time we get to chapter 3, we, we hear really a, a different tone in this very, very famous passage in Ecclesiastes 3 that I think Solomon helps give us some direction on how we develop balance in our lives. So Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 11, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There are many awesome truths in this passage, but I want to look at what I would consider three that will help us develop our balance that I think Solomon is trying to communicate after his pursuit of everything that should have brought pleasure, at least from our perspective, to what really will help us develop balance in our lives. The first place we should look in order to help develop balance is we should look around. Look around. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. I think, I think what Solomon is saying is this. Embrace the seasons of your life. Whatever season you're in, embrace that season. Some of us may be in a season of gathering. Others may be in a season of throwing away. Uh, we may be in a time of laughter. We may be in a season of mourning. But whatever season we're in, we should embrace that season. And if we don't look around and see and 
and realize what's going on around us. If we go through life with just blinders on, then we won't know the, the season of our lives. If I were walking a balance beam, my temptation would be to look down at the beam the whole time. I would probably be so focused on the beam that I would lose perspective of all of my surroundings. But if you watch a great gymnast, they don't look down that much. Their sense of balance, because when you look down all the time, you know what happens? Your sense of balance gets off. I mean, your innate sense of balance. You weren't made to look down the whole time. The way your head and the way things operate in your ears and all your balance mechanisms, they get worse if all you do is look down all the time. God created you, I think, to look out, to look around, to embrace the seasons of your life. I think what Solomon is really saying to us is that these various seasons, and you're all, we all, are going to go through diverse seasons. A time to plant, time to uproot, time to laugh, time to cry, time to gather, time to throw away. Too often, we look at the season of our life, and instead of embracing it, we let that season knock us off balance. Because we're so... easily distracted by the circumstances of our lives that we lose track. Down in verse 11, after he goes through everything, he says this, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Every season has its own beauty, if we'll receive it as such. Every season has its own purpose. I... I can't in any way guarantee you that if you come to know Christ, the rest of your life will be a yellow brick road paved, wonderful sunflower existence. As a matter of fact, I can pretty well promise you something different. I mean, I don't know what it'll look like, but I know as you travel on this journey, you're going to experience different seasons. If at some point somebody has told you that if you'll come to Jesus, nothing will ever go wrong with your life again. Please, please, please get that out of your head. Because even followers of Christ, he's more concerned with making us Christ-like. And he'll bring things into our lives that will knock off the rough edges of our lives. And if we don't see God at work around us, if we don't see the joy of people around us, The the next thing we're going to be doing is cursing the darkness. We're going to be isolating ourselves from people. We're going to be wondering where God is in the midst of stuff rather than saying this season God is trying to teach me something. Every season has a beauty in its own way. So if we're not going to get knocked off balance, we need to embrace the seasons of our lives. We need to look around and see where we are. Second, we need to look forward. Look forward. One of the beautiful verses in verse parts of verse 11, it says this, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. You see, even though we look around and we embrace the day, we embrace the season, this is not just about today. 
Because God has set eternity in our hearts. We need to, to look forward to tomorrow and the next day and the days ahead and eternity. What happens beyond death? I believe Solomon is saying there's a curiosity about eternity that's been placed in our hearts and the hearts of every man. It's been placed there by God. He's placed this desire among us. Looking around and celebrating and accomplishing what God has given us to do today is great, and we should do that. At the same time, we should be looking forward Place one foot in front of the other, moving forward, but knowing that it's, it's there because eternity has been placed in our hearts by God. Here's a question, too. What will I do today that I can actually carry with me into eternity? What am I going to accomplish today if I'm eternal-minded It's not just about me dying and going to heaven, but if I'm eternal-minded and the fruit is carried into eternity, what am I going to do today that's going to carry with me into eternity? And for many of us, the things we give most of our time, most of our energy to, they're just going to burn. They're just going to waste away. That's really where Solomon is saying in chapter 2, everything that I gave my time to, it's just meaningless because I'm not going to carry it with me through eternity. But there is eternity, and God has placed it in our hearts. Contrast this with the, uh, this long quote from Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a prominent atheist who had no faith in the Bible or God, and he once said this, The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none can tarry long. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, Omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man, condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness, it remains only to cherish, ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. Russell's view of life had no perspective of eternity. And because of it, he saw death as omnipotent. He saw it as all-powerful. He saw that that was the end. And as we watch our friends just rolled over by omnipotent death, all we have to live for is today. Not only is it depressing, it's wrong. Because God has placed eternity in our hearts. I am, I'm fascinated by the, the culture of our day, the literature of our day, the movies of our day, even the music of our day. And if you look at it, you see this 
longing for eternity. What happens after death? What happens after death? Or how can we prevent death? Can we become vampires and werewolves and all sorts of stuff? It's more, it's more about eternity than anything else to me. This longing for eternity. C.S. Lewis contrasts this Bertrand Russell's quote with this of C.S. Lewis. He said, if I find in myself a desire that this world cannot fulfill, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He sees the longing for something more as the longing placed in our hearts by God. Look around. Embrace the season of your life. Look forward to eternity. It it puts today in perspective. A couple of years ago, really more like five years ago now, Kathy and I went to Boston, and um, then we went on a trip. We kind of drove up to Maine, and we saw this lighthouse, the Portland Head Light, it's called. The Portland Head Light, it just stands right there. It's one of the most picturesque, beautiful places in all the United States. So this week, uh, I had Meredith go buy us a puzzle, and the puzzle is of the lighthouse, the Portland Head Lighthouse. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the pieces to the puzzle. It's a 500-piece puzzle, but it's a mega puzzle, and it's for a family. So I figure we're all a family, so... Grab some pieces of the puzzle. Here you go, John. I told you I was going to throw. I can't even throw these far enough. (laughs) Everybody take some pieces of the puzzle and uh, go around the sanctuary, pick them up, and we're going to put it together. No, I'm just kidding. I know. We don't have time to do that. Here's some more, Hannah. Get them back there. Let's say we went through and picked up all these 500 pieces of the puzzle. And then we all started putting them together, and we got to a place where it all looked great, and everything was wonderful. I've even got the picture there up for you to look at. Okay, I'm picking up the pieces. I'm going to put the puzzle. Well, you got a problem, because I've got like 50 pieces in my pocket that I never gave you. And eventually, you're going to reach a point of frustration where the puzzle is not going to fit because you don't have all the pieces. Ultimately, God has placed eternity in our hearts, not so that we'll put the puzzle together and figure out what it is, but so that we will go to him. He is... He's placed eternity in our hearts so that we'll be drawn to him. You see, eternity and the answer to eternity is not going to be found in any of these life-after-death movies, any of these um, supernatural kind of explanations, any of these doomsday movies. The hope is not in humanity. All of those are incomplete pictures to a puzzle. God has placed eternity in our hearts so that ultimately, if we're going to maintain balance, we have to look up. We have to look toward him. Verse 11, he has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
we need to get our perspective correct by looking around and embracing the seasons, looking forward to embracing eternity. But ultimately, our balance is only going to be correct when we depend upon and trust in and look to God for the answer for every part of our lives. To me, that's really the message of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, I pursued all of this stuff looking for meaning, and it all turned out meaningless. Ecclesiastes is in no way a hopeless book. It's only hopeless if that's where you stay. It's hopeful in that Solomon eventually leads us to a point that says, look to God. Look up. Look to him. In 2002, in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, nine miners got trapped in a mine. What happened was they accidentally drilled into another mine that was then connected to a lake and water flooded the mine. And they they went into an area and sealed off the area so that they could survive. Some other people perished before they could get in, but nine guys got trapped in this one area of the mine. The dead end was 18 feet by 70 feet with nine men and an air pocket just long enough for them to survive. They wrapped on the rock ceiling nine taps on the ceiling every 10 minutes, hoping that someone was looking for them. Someone with some specialized equipment that they could, that could hear them. After a pretty lengthy period of time, the leader of the miners gave it to them straight and basically said in another hour that they would, they would perish, that the, the air was getting so low, the carbon dioxide was filling up the room, they were going to perish. So they did two things. They actually, well, more than two, but they, they wrote, they got a piece of paper. One had something to write on. They got something to write on, and they each wrote a note to their family saying goodbye. They took the note that each of them had written. They put it in a bucket. Then they took a cable, and they tied themselves together so that when they were found, they were found as a unit, and their notes would be found to to their loved ones. Nine men trapped 200 feet below the surface, hoping, but suddenly losing hope. What they didn't know was, up on the surface, there was a frantic, very frantic effort going on to try and rescue them. From their vantage point, no one was coming. They had no idea, no hope. They kept thinking, but when it reached a point where they couldn't, well, pretty close to the last minute, the people on the surface had actually heard the taps but couldn't respond. They had ultra-sensitive listening equipment, and they drilled down with an air pipe into the mine. And after one of the times when they heard nine taps, they started tapping on the pipe that they drilled down so that the men could know that they were there. And eventually they installed a cable through the air shaft, which also said, can you hear me? 
these guys went from hopelessness to hope based on the first sign was air and tapping and a voice. You see, without God, we're, we're trapped, we're hopeless. We may be looking for something that will provide us answers, but ultimately we won't get them. If you, even as a, listen to this, if you, even as a follower of Jesus, start looking to something else to provide you stability and balance in your life, you're going to come to a point where you're going to get knocked off balance. You're going to get your world rocked because God didn't create you and redeem you in order for you to now put your hope or your faith in something other than him. This morning, I want to encourage you to develop and keep your balance in a very uncertain world. When the enemy tries to knock you off the beam of life, how are you going to stand secure? Look around. Embrace the season of your life. Look forward. God gives you a new day. His mercies are new Every morning, every morning, God gives you new mercy. Look forward to eternity. Get your perspective by fixing your eyes on where you're really headed. And at the same time, look up. Look up to him because our real balance in life and pieces of all the puzzle come together only when we put our faith and hope, faith and hope in him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you will give us wisdom and guidance and direction in and for the days ahead. Lord, first of all, we want to confess there are many of us who have been knocked off balance. Some very recently, some over the past years, maybe some a decade ago, and we're still trying to regain our balance. Lord, we pray this morning that we would not only regain our balance, but our balance would be sustained and we'd learn to maintain balance by following your ways. Lord, forgive us where we put our hope in another person. Forgive us when we put our faith and trust into stuff. Forgive us where we've misplaced what you've given us that should have been placed in you totally. So, Lord, this morning, I pray for this people in this place that, God, you would help us develop balance because we believe you have a great plan and a great purpose for the days ahead. For us corporately as well as individually, and may we be so standing on the rock that is Christ that we cannot be knocked off balance by whatever the enemy throws at us. Lord, we thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.